Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Partly Political Broadcast. Now look, I've got to start this week by saying, I do try and keep this show swear-free and completely clean. You know, mainly for the kids. All those kids who want a quick dose of boundary changes explanations in between playing with their Lego and watching Pixar films. But the thing is, this week kids, I'm afraid I need to say, what the fuck is wrong with Jeremy Hunt? I mean, what the fuck? What the fuck? I mean, I swear his plans will keep more junior doctors away from the NHS than if everyone in the UK all swore to eat an apple a day. Back in episode one of this show, we talked to junior doctor Keir Shields about how damaging Jeremy Hunt's proposed contract would be. If you haven't heard it, do go back and have a listen, because Keir explains it far better than I ever could. Basically, he said that it would stretch many of them over much longer hours and it would threaten patients' lives as they'd have to do surgical procedures while completely exhausted and all while getting a lot less pay. I mean, as Keir explained, it's not that a reform isn't needed. The doctors have been calling out for one for a very long time. It's just that one where hospitals become a walking dead theme park and each surgery is like a drunken game of operation isn't what's needed. So Jeremy Hunt saying that the BMA won't negotiate with him and then saying events are cancelled but having them in secret locations so that they can't come. Or his insistence that highly qualified junior doctors just need to read the contract properly. It's their writing they're not good at, not reading you moron. These are all the sorts of tactics that would cause the cowardly lion to tell him to fucking grow a pair. What the fuck Jeremy Hunt, seriously, what the fuck. Then, and this is what amazes me right? Jeremy Hunt, after there was another doctor's strike showing just how angry and passionate they are about all of this. Firstly, he decides to impose the contract without further discussion. And then, Jeremy Hunt launches an inquiry into why doctor's morale is so low. That is incredible. I really wonder if Jeremy Hunt regularly gets confused why the man in the mirror is always wearing the same clothes that he does. I mean, I don't know why anyone, including myself, should be surprised by this. Hunt's not qualified with any sort of medical expertise. Uh, Instead, I think he's got a BA in philosophy, which I suppose will explain why junior doctors and the public are regularly screaming, why, oh, why, oh, why, at most of his decisions. You know, it's sort of like when he was the culture secretary and he had an extreme lack of interest in culture and more an interest in letting Rupert Murdoch buy even more things. This time round, it's kind of clear that Jeremy has no real interest in how the medical system works and instead he just wants hospitals to become so sick that a private company can come in and help rebuild them. It's sort of like the $6 million man, but if it was rebuilt by a junior doctor who's finishing a 60-hour week. The frightening thing is that while the BMA have said they'll keep fighting this, it doesn't look like Jeremy Hunt or the government supporting him are going to back down. And more worrying is that this should be something that Labour are jumping all over. All there's been is a pre-strike comment from Corbyn and McDonnell, and then Corbyn wore an I Heart Unions badge at Prime Minister's questions, which is the absolute minimum he could do. 
It's kind of the same as saying he's 100% behind endangered rare elephants and then wears an I Heart Animals sticker. Ah, look, I know Jez is all about the non-aggressive new politics, but if he had a bit of sense, he'd be screaming daily about how the government are making sure that doctors and nurses is no longer a sexy game, but now just two tired and sad people working out which country they should move to instead. At the time of recording, there is a petition to give a vote of no confidence in Jeremy Hunt, and it's reached just under 300,000 signatures. Which is great although it doesn't really make any difference, especially when it seems Conservative MPs only have to resign when David Cameron says he does have full confidence in them. What actually needs to happen is for the opposition to really actually oppose this and challenge it. Or, you know, I suppose for all the junior doctors to just up and leave to other countries that care about them. Or for Jeremy Hunt to have some sort of terrible, terrible accident and then sadly the really tired, overworked doctors doing his operation just can't help him live. I'm pretty sure if that was the case, then his tombstone would simply say, Here lies. Right children, it's safe to listen again. This week, keep it in the family. David Cameron's aunt protested in Oxfordshire this week against local council cuts that are going to lead to the closure of 44 children's centres. And that came just days after David Cameron's mum signed a petition against conservative cuts to essential services, which proves all of us wrong who thought that only a mother could love him. Local authorities have had 40% of their funding cuts since 2010, which has led to closures of services such as libraries, museums, elderly care facilities, and all those sorts of places we like to keep around, you know, to help people and stop the world looking like a sci-fi dystopia. There's also a new £300 million relief fund to help out local governments, but it seems that most of it is going to areas with Conservative MPs. Like Whitney, where Dave Cameron and his family are. Funny that. This means that some of the UK's most deprived areas are largely missing out, despite them needing it most. The government aren't saying where this funding will come from, and it seems like it's mainly just to keep 30 Tory MPs from revolting. Though, when aren't they revolting, eh? Still, at least Christmas round the Camerons will be awkward next year, eh? Family Fortunes George Osborne's family business isn't, as you'd probably assume, farming orphans' tears or designing human-sized reptile houses. Instead, Osborne and Little Limited, which is owned by his parents, is a wallpaper business. I know, right? Wallpaper. You'd sort of think that with that in the family, he'd be much neater in covering up all of his mistakes. It was revealed that his parents' business hasn't paid corporation tax in over seven years, and George Osborne himself has made at least £335,000 from it in just the last year alone. Look, none of this is illegal, of course, but it does seem kind of interesting considering that Osborne has warned several times now that companies who do not pay their tax will face the full force of the law. I suppose it also explains all the cuts to the legal system too, then. Slightly smaller force. Also, this week, another brilliant 10 points for the Osborne family, George's brother, sad that all the rest of the family were getting such great publicity, stole the spotlight by getting struck off the medical register for abusing one of his vulnerable psychiatric patients. A very horrible and very sad story, but it does go to show that certain things, like how you treat the needy, do indeed run in the family. Family Ties! Remember former MP and designer of the plebgate Andrew Mitchell? Well, in yet more fun family fappenings, his daughter has joined the call for sacking Jeremy Hunt. Hooray! Go Dr Hannah Mitchell! She said that Jeremy Hunt is either dishonest or stupid, which is a pretty good diagnosis from a genian doctor, but signs show it's possible that he's actually both. Arrested Development The case for keeping Trident seems to be dragging on and on, with lots of people chipping in from all sides. The US Defence Secretary has said that Trident lets the UK punch above its weight, which I think means we get to date Italy or something. However, for the Labour Party, they are having more and more arguments about whether they're for or against. Labour are very quickly becoming one of those parties that no one enjoys going to and instead just wishes that they'd stayed at home instead of now being outside having an argument while someone cries into a beer. The Shadow Defence Secretary, Emily Thornberry, says that she will keep an open mind about the options, but she's said that she is against a renewal, leading other Labour peers and Labour MPs to vocally disagree. 
I sort of wonder if both sides should just get over it and buy their own nuclear defence systems to deter the other from blowing things up even more. They're watching your family! A security tribunal has ruled that it's not illegal and doesn't breach human rights for GCHQ to hack your computers or phones. Yay! I suggest someone sets up a website called GCHQ Are Terribly Nosy Bastards and we all click on it 600 times a day until they get the message. Though they are probably hearing this right now and I'm going to be arrested before I get to the end of... Ah! Seriously, save your family! Nigel Farage has accepted a challenge to debate EU membership with Alex Salmond head-to-head. The only plus side of this is that once we know where and when this will be, we can avoid them both at the same time. That is it. That is the only plus point. It's all EU, EU, EU at the moment, isn't it? And while that does make a nice change about it being all me, 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 it's already getting a bit boring. Especially when you know it's all we're going to be hearing about for several more months to come. I realised I don't actually know a lot about the European Union myself. I know it was designed to stop wars in Europe from happening again, you know, after the second one. I mean, I guess just one war seemed a bit unlucky, but after the second you think, well, this probably shouldn't happen again, eh? I mean, start mass war on a global scale once, shame on you. But do it twice create the EU, or something like that. Anyway, I've always thought that that seemed a good thing generally, as war, what is it good for? Well, yeah, that's right, the weapons industry. It seems there's a lot of information swirling about the EU, with many people I speak to, like myself, being completely confused as to what's right, what isn't, and just why we should care about any of it at all. So, this week, I was very pleased to be able to ask all these sorts of questions to John Worth. John is an EU policy specialist and he spent several years teaching civil servants how the union works at the now deceased National School of Government. So he really knows what's what. He's currently based in Berlin and he writes a brilliantly clear but very in-depth Euroblog that has received many plaudits by many publications. So, without further ado, John, over to EU. Okay, John, so this is going to sound like a really silly and quite big question to start with, but as a general member of the public myself, I don't really know what the EU does. What does it do? <laughs> the Europe, it's basically a large free trade block. Essentially, it allows uh, those countries that are in it and, co- and companies operating in those countries to basically sell their goods and services to all of the other countries within the block. Uh, it's much easier to do that than if you were, say, selling uh, a car to the United States, something like that. So basically, it's a, an economic trading block with 28 countries in it that was established back in the 1950s to ensure that there would be peace in Europe after World War II. And uh, that's the, the best explanation of what the European Union is and what it does. Right. So it's, it's uh, primarily for trading purposes, really. It's primarily for trading purposes, but it's not only that. Um, if you are trading uh, anything from a car to a bottle of whiskey, uh, if the people on the other side of the border have a different definition or a different thinking of what your car is, uh, what it, or how, it, how it is legal, like the French used to drive with yellow headlights on their cars and the British with white headlights, right. uh, you've always got the difficulty that you, is your British car, you've got to build it to a different standard if you export it to France, those kind of issues. Or, or what, are, what are the ingredients you're allowed to put in a, in a bottle of whiskey or a bottle of wine? So what's happened is you've needed political agreements over the years to kind of even out some of those uh, irregularities in the market as well. So it's not just saying, I can sell to you. It's also saying, these are the standards by which I can also sell to you in another European country. Right. So it's almost like a regulatory body as well right. as a, a, a trading kind of policy. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and with a modern market, you need those, that, that, those sorts of rules in order to make sure that that trade can happen. Um, so I think there's a bit of a misnomer in the UK that free trade doesn't necessarily mean no politics. It's sure. very political because you need to make sure that the standards under which the products can be traded are uh, at least to everyone's kind of minimum standards, if you like. 
So is that why things like workers' rights uh, are part of it, or is that exactly yeah? and and environmental standards, uh, things like that? That basically therefore means that uh, if. I don't know, if Slovakia were treating all of its workers particularly badly, then um, a lot of business would move to Slovakia in order to undercut businesses in neighbouring countries, in Czech Republic or Austria or something like that. Another thing that's important are environmental standards. Um, If I own a factory... uh, at the German-Belgian border and my factory is pumping out a load of pollution and it's landing on my neighbours, then the European Union is there to help solve some of those sorts of issues, kind of problems that have a cross-border implication. Hmm. Okay. So, right, so that's quite... I mean, that sounds very useful, especially for the state of, uh, of the environment overall, really, in Europe. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and also, that also has a knock-on effect on the, the impact on, uh, on seas and oceans around the European Union as well, because, of course, what we pump into our rivers ends up in the seas. You therefore need some kind of collective management to make sure that, uh, that fish are not poisoned, to make sure that fish are not overfished as well. So that's the essential basis for the European Union, is these things that you can't necessarily easily solve as one individual country on your own. You try to solve those things collaboratively uh, within the European Union. Right. And, and as someone, because I've, I've read your blog quite a few times before, and I have to say I found it very useful in the past, especially sort of during uh, the Euro crash a couple of years ago and, and Greece's financial problems. Um, but you are you say on your blog that you don't class yourself as a classical pro-European, but you do think that the EU should exist. So why do you think it's useful? I mean, obviously, you've just explained some of the reasons, but overall, you think it's better for us to have this body that regulates everything. Um, yes, well, I, I, absolutely. And the, those reasons I've just outlined are some of the reasons why I think the European Union is in and of itself a good thing. The difficulty I have with it is it has a major impact over our lives, but we as people have relatively little control over what it decides to do and how it decides to do it. Um, that has tended to be known as the democratic deficit in the European Union. Um, we tend to view the European Union as kind of a battle of the countries that are within it. Britain wants this, France wants that, Germany wants this. Um, I'd rather see it differently to that. We have the European Parliament. We, as European people, elect our members of the European Parliament, but the European Parliament can't really overall change the whole direction of the European Union. So what I'd like to see is greater democracy within the European Union to mean that we voters can have a direct say over the way that the European Union uh, is going. I feel, for example, as a British person who lives in Germany, who works in Belgium, I kind of live the European Union on an everyday basis, that I have a British passport is rather immaterial to me in terms of the way that the European Union works. I am a kind of a lefty green, and I want the European Union to be lefty and green, but I've not really got the way as a voter of trying to push it to be lefty and green. Um, And therein lies the the difficulty. Um, Too often, classical pro-Europeans tend to think the European Union is good and therefore feel they need to defend everything that it does. Um, and I think that that's the wrong, wrong way of looking at it. Um, it's, it's on balance a good thing, but not everything that it does is correct. Certainly, for my view, economically, it's a bit too pro-austerity and a bit too right-wing economically just now. Yeah, because I mean, this is part of the problem that I'm having. As someone who's trying to learn and understand about the referendum before I vote. And and I should say that I'm pro-EU and I like the idea of the union um, and I'm above the belief that it should be reformed from within it. Um, yeah. But this is my issue is that all the arguments we have for leaving aren't the arguments I would have for leaving, for example. Uh, my issues aren't about border controls or about keeping London as a tax haven. Um, my issues are more about fighting the, the TTIP, you know, right. <laughs> those sort of problems. <laughs> Exactly, but what you say just essentially underlines that that that, that sort of difficulty, um, and especially in Britain, the European Union is tended to be seen as something that's essentially about big business rather than something that brings everyday advantages to everyday people. And I think that we see in the referendum campaign precisely that. Essentially what's happening is you're seeing a very pro-big business, pro-banking, pro-City of London kind of line which is being articulated because the government that's holding this referendum in the UK is a Conservative government and so they're wanting to put their kind of Conservative stamp on what they want the European Union to be. Mm. Um, I think that... uh, 
I, I, I'm on your point about uh, TTIP, the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership, um, I think it's a bit of a misnomer that if Britain were to leave the European Union, that we wouldn't have any impact of TTIP. Um, right. That's mainly because um, Britain has to trade with the European Union anyway. If Britain were to have to trade with the United States and strike its own sort of fair trade deal with the United States, it would contain much of what TTIP includes anyway. Right. But it's also worth saying that Britain was never some lefty paradise before it joined the <laughs> European Union. Uh, so my fear is... I'm in mean, shock, John. I'm in shock. If Britain left the European Union, I fear it would go more in a rightwards direction. Um, things like basic standards of maternity and paternity leave, for example, in the UK were only introduced as a result of uh, the UK joining the European Union. So, um, so I think as a, as a kind of a lefty progressive, uh, the argument is to stay in to make sure that at national level, the left wins, to make sure in the European Parliament elections, the left does better, so as to try to put the to push the European Union in a slightly more progressive direction, uh, because just far too many national governments and the European Parliament are dominated by the centre-right just now, sure. and that therefore means, unfortunately, you're going to get centre-right polit political results out of, uh, out of the body. Right, sure. And I, and I mean, and just, uh, and I'm fairly sure that most of the listeners to this are of the same political way of thinking that I am as well, and, and slightly lefty. But I mean, there's a lot of right wing people that want to leave the EU. And I'm fairly certain that they maybe don't realise that a lot of laws that we would lose or a lot of regulation we would lose would affect them quite badly as well. Is that right? Sort of, as we were discussing before about workers, uh, work, you know, working hours and things like that. Well, the thing is, is that while you or I may see the European Union as some kind of centre-rightish body economically. If you listen to some of the kind of uh, uh, hardline free marketeers in the British Conservative Party, they see the European Union as a tremendous burden on business, a kind of a, a, a way to shackle on the British economy as they see it. Right. And they would quite happily get rid of working time rules, uh, get rid of rules about maternity and paternity leave, um, do things in order to manage to prioritise a business interest even more heavily in the European Union. Sure. So the, 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 the Eurosceptic part of the Conservative Party wants Britain to leave the EU to make Britain like some kind of greater offshore Singapore uh, right. where there is very, very little business regulation. So uh, they, they, they have a kind of a, a right-wing economic critique of the European Union um, that, um, that that's their reason for wanting Britain to leave. Right. OK. And, and do you I mean, sort of looking at some of the other issues that we're that we're being given by the uh, vote leave and grassroots out parties? Yep. I mean, is is immigration something that we should actually be worried about? Is, is uh, you know, EU migration an issue? Because I mean, I've looked at a few sort of or tried to find actual figures, which is much harder than it sounds. <laughs> um, you know, we're told that half of migrants over here are on benefits and you look it up and go, it's not really anywhere near that amount. Um, but is that, you know, uh, do you, in your opinion, do you think that stricter border controls and things like that are actually something that we need? Uh, uh, no, absolutely not. Um, and I, indeed, I'm a British passport holder who lives in Germany, so you have to see things the other way round sure. as well, right? There are more there are more EU citizens living in the UK than there are Brits living in the rest of the European Union. It's about 2.5 million EU citizens in Britain in Britain and 1.5 million Brits in the rest of the European Union. Right? Sure. So it's not exactly equal, but nevertheless, you need to see the other side of it. Second, if you look at the statistics, those uh, EU citizens in the UK, uh, they pay more in tax and they take less in benefits than British uh, people uh, on average. Right. So they actually contribute to the British welfare system. And they're also statistically less likely to be unemployed than the entirety of the British population, if you take that as a whole. Right. So those people contribute to the British uh, state uh, through their taxes. Um, they contribute economically. Now, Therefore, you might then make the argument, as I see it, that actually 
freedom of movement within the European Union is a right. Uh, it's a right that should be protected. And I therefore strongly dislike the argument which is made by David Cameron. He keeps on saying that Britain is somehow swamped or, 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 or the British National Health Service is overburdened as a result of the um, uh, European Union, freedom of movement within the European Union. Yeah. But there are also many jobs within uh, the National Health Service that would never get done were the North <laughs> European Union citizens who were willing to be in the UK to do them. Sure. Um, so, so as I see it, freedom of movement within the European Union is a good thing. 1.5 million British people profit from it. The British economy has enormously profited from those people that come to the UK. And so therefore, I think it's something that's been good overall um, and therefore ought to be protected. And so what David Cameron wants is kind of emergency breaks or his limits on in-work in benefits. Um, I, I'm very strongly opposed to any of those, um, uh, any of those sorts of ideas. It's yeah. also worth saying that Cameron's proposals are met with some confusion by other governments of other European countries because this in-work benefit system that the British have, no one else in any other European country really has the same sort of system. Right. Um, it's mainly because so many British employers pay such rotten low wages that the state has to top those wages up with in-work benefits. Uh, in other European countries, minimum wages tend to be higher or the cost of living lower, so as to mean that in-work benefits are generally not needed. Right, sure. So almost complaining about the in-work benefits is distracting from the point that we're not paying workers enough exactly. and don't have good enough working standards. Sure. Right. Uh, and I mean, just to stick to the immigration issue for a minute, the... If the, the EU migration changes came through, for example. Or... Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Or borders were, you know, closed. Those 1.5 million Brits like yourself in Europe, that would change things quite drastically for, for you as well, wouldn't it? Yes, but we don't know what would happen. Um, right. David Cameron has been a pains to suggest that those EU citizens in the UK already would not be kicked out. So therefore, you could kind of conclude that the Brits that are in other parts of the European Union would not be immediately in danger of being kicked out. But I can come and live in Germany as a matter of right. Uh, I don't have to apply for any uh, visa uh, to stay or to work here. I wouldn't be too keen to have to then in the future apply for a visa in order to stay. Sure. Um, I am looking at getting a German passport as my um, kind of insurance policy against uh, what would happen if Britain left the European Union. And there are other British people here in Berlin and elsewhere who I know are doing exactly the same sort of thing um, because European Union freedom of movement matters to them. Um, perhaps more than having a British passport does, and therefore they're considering applying for, for local citizenship. Sure, 
Sure. Yeah. I mean, I I was just uh, gigging in Belgium last week, so I very much <laughs> I very much like the fact that I could just pop over and do that exactly uh, without um, having to and fill and in and a ton of forms. People sure. contacted. I was contacted by a musician on my blog the other day. She said, "I I want to move to Berlin for six months. Like, can I do that?" It's like, of course you can, because you have the right to do that. So you yeah. just need to find a flat here, just like anyone else. Whereas if she were an American musician or a Turkish musician who wanted to come to Berlin or to Paris or Madrid or wherever else, it would be much, much harder. And that great freedom that you have uh, as, a, um, as a, 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 an EU citizen is great. And I think that, uh, that I, I don't want to call that into, day, into, into, into any question. Sure. Yeah, no, it, it's a hugely brilliant thing. I actually know of a couple of comedians who live in parts of Europe and commute to London every weekend to do their gigs and go back because <laughs> it's much nicer to live in the south of France, for example, and much more affordable. Cheaper as well, probably. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Back to John in just a minute. But first... Back in 2013, Lib Dem MP Chris Hune was convicted of perverting the course of justice for passing his speeding points onto his wife and was sentenced to eight months in prison. Which, if his wife Vicky hadn't also been sentenced to, I'm sure he'd have asked her to do them instead. Why am I bringing this archaic case up to Innan? Good question. Well, back yonder three years ago, David Cameron said in a public statement that Chris Hune's jail service serves as a reminder that no one, however high and mighty, is out of reach of the justice system. And then Chris Hume only served two out of the eight months of his sentence. This week, under a motion from I could probably bludgeon a puppy with my hands and not flinch Chris Grayling, a Commons vote decided to bring MPs' rights in line with members of the public and allow any arrests of parliamentarians to be anonymous until charge. Which I suppose is fair, if that's what we plebs get too. You know, even if it sort of feels like the public should know if a person they've elected to be in charge of their whole constituency has possibly been up to mischief. It is very much the British legal way, and thankfully so, that you are innocent until proven guilty. So, look, why not the same for MPs, eh? Well, the thing is, us lot have our identities protected by the Human Rights Act, which several Conservative MPs, Chris Grayling included, funny that, want to abolish. So in a matter of years, it could be that once again the legal battleground is highly unequal. But I'm sure that is just an oversight, eh? I'm sure, I'm sure they haven't thought that through. As Labour MP Melanie On said this week, no member of this house or other place is above the law and nor should they consider themselves to be. True, true, Melanie. And just to prove that MPs are exactly the same as us and don't have any special treatment when it comes to criminal cases, here's a little rogues gallery I've made of some case studies. Cue some not-quite-Tony-Hart music because I couldn't afford the PRS fees. David Laws claimed over £40,000 of expenses to rent rooms from his lover. Broke six expenses rules. Punishment was made Minister of State in the Department of Education until losing his seat in the 2015 election. Justice served. Cyril Smith in 2012, the Crown Prosecution Service admitted Smith should have been charged with crimes of abuse over 40 years ago. Punishment. Never charged. Justice served. Margaret Moran. Claimed over £53,000 in expenses illegally. Punishment. Two years supervision and treatment order due to being mentally unfit. Justice served. David Cameron. Caught smoking cannabis aged 15 whilst at Eton. Punishment. Grounded for two weeks, made to write hundreds of lines of Latin poetry. Justice served. Harriet Harman. Crashed her car while using her mobile phone. Punishment. Three points on her licence. A small fine. Justice served. Andrew McKay. Claimed expenses illegally. Punishment. Stood down at the next election. How nice of him. Justice served. Eric Joyce. Punched and headbutted two political aides in a pub. Punishment. 12 months community service. Three month ban from entering pubs. Justice served. 
Boris Johnson. Whilst at university, threw a potted plant through someone's window with friends. Punishment. None. He ran away from the police. Justice served. Simon Burns. Careless driving that caused a collision with a cyclist and broke his neck. Punishment. A fine. Four points on his licence. Justice served. Oliver Letwin. Threw away over 100 secret documents into public bins at St James's Park. Punishment. Currently MP for West Dorset. Justice served. Ah, see? The law applies to all of us equally. Now back to John. So an area that I have, and I mean, I have no idea about a lot of areas, but an area I particularly have no idea about um, with the recent kind of uh, with the Greece debt crisis and stuff is that lots of people are kind of saying that could happen again and that could affect the UK uh, and we don't ever want to join the euro. I mean, is leaving the EU, would that make the UK financially safer? Um, the 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 difficulty is, is no one quite knows what Britain's relationship with the European Union would be after it left. Right. Um, the European Union is the biggest trading partner of the UK, right, um, in total. So the UK exports something between 40 and 50% of its goods and services to the European Union and between 50 and 60% to the rest of the world. So there is, it's the biggest single trading partner for the, for the UK. So were there to be a Eurozone crisis in the short term after Britain left the European Union, then it would still hit, hit the UK um, very hard. What some of the proponents of British exit argue is that would allow, if Britain left, it would allow Britain to reorientate its trade towards other parts of the world right. uh, and to therefore lessen the impact that a uh, Eurozone crisis would have on the UK. Um, I don't trust those arguments very much because there's nothing currently preventing the UK trading with other parts of the world. Um, and indeed, trade with the rest of the world has been inching up as a percentage and trade with the European Union going down fractionally as a percentage. Right. So, uh, so in the short to medium term, were there to be another Eurozone crisis, uh, it would hit the UK anyway. Um, and bear in mind that Britain imports also from the European Union and British businesses export to the European Union very intensively. So therefore, essentially, Britain can't isolate itself completely from a Eurozone crisis, even if it left the European Union. On the other hand, of course, there's no serious plan for Britain to join the Eurozone. And indeed, the Eurozone itself has got uh, quite a lot of difficulties that it still hasn't sorted out. Right. So um, I see, though, any of those arguments around the Euro as being only a side issue, essentially, uh, in, in the referendum uh, campaign, or, or they should be. Anyone on the no side saying if the Euro breaks, it's going to bring Britain down with it, and that's why Britain should leave, I don't think that argument holds water. Okay, and and what does because uh, again part of the argument is that that's uh, is it Switzerland that's not part of the EU? Is that correct? Yes, Switzerland isn't in the European Union yet. Yeah, and is it Norway as well? Is that right? Norway also, and Liechtenstein and Iceland. Right. Okay, but they've got a special deal with the EU that means they can still trade. Right now, the the, the trading deals are slightly different. Um, uh, Iceland and Norway have to implement all of the European Union law anyway. They right. don't get a vote on deciding what that law is. So right. essentially is... That sounds um, rubbish, right? <laughs> Basically. Well, the, the Norwegian Europe minister has also said it's pretty rubbish. Now, right. the thing is it gives business a degree of stability. Right? If you're a Norwegian enterprise, you know what standards under which you're going to have to trade. But if you want those standards to be changed, it therefore means it's difficult to influence that process. 
Switzerland has a more complicated arrangement. It's struck bilateral agreements. So in some areas, Switzerland does implement European Union law, and in other areas, it doesn't. But for example, Switzerland's um, farming industry, for example, all of its food standards are exactly the same as the European Union ones, right. simply because it's too complicated for a Swiss cheese producer to produce one lot of cheese to European standards and one <laughs> lot of cheese to a Swiss standard. <laughs> sure. And so the same would happen to the UK, were the UK to, to leave. So in some industries, you may see some degree of, of change to the standards, but in any sort of export-orientated industry, those, those, uh, it would cost too much to, to, to produce cars or cheese to two different standards. Sure. So therefore, essentially, the European Union standard will dominate anyway. Right. OK, that's fair enough. And European cheese is great. So I don't see why you would you would want to do it any differently. Um, I, uh, I'm sure you'll find a vote leave person who wants to defend Wensleydale. I'm sure, I'm sure you're absolutely right. Um, and, and just just out of interest as well, because I'm finding uh, varying degrees of care about this in the UK. There are a few quite, you know, I've met a few people who are very, very pro or very against. But the majority of people really don't care, which is worrying, I think, yep. in a way that we're going to have very low voter turnout. Now, um, what's a, you know, you, you work in, you live in Germany, you work in Belgium. What do other Europeans think about the UK leaving the EU? Do they care? Is it, does it, you know, do they think we're sort of quite up ourselves for wanting to demand, uh, uh, you know, clauses that will help us specifically? I mean, what's, what's well, the, the feeling? It, it was interesting that the, a German political TV show, comedy show called the Heute Show, it's like the kind of German equivalent of the Daily Show, right? and um, had a, 10-minute sketch about Britain leaving the European Union, where they said that Britain is always demanding in German an extra wurst. It means literally an extra sausage. Right. It basically <laughs> means uh, kind of Britain is always the one that's cherry-picking. Right? right. Now, if you can have a German piece of comedy about the British cherry-picking, I think that says that this sort of discussion is understood at least among a politically knowledgeable bunch of people in Germany. And I think the same would be said in France as well. Sure. The difficulty is, is you, in Britain or in Germany or in France, political debate doesn't really reach into everyday conversation very often. So I think that while it might be the talk of political Berlin, it might be the talk of political Paris, this is not an issue that goes deeply into the societies in France or in Germany, just as it does not go deeply into the society in the UK yet. Sure. Um, and looking at the referendum from afar, um, I, I'm surprised at how flat the whole thing feels at the moment in the UK referendum. Um, it feels like neither the pro side nor the anti side has really got going and it's definitely not caught any public imagination as yet. Yeah. Um, maybe that's perhaps the way that, that David Cameron would actually like it. Um, yeah, I mean, I suppose uh, from my point of view, the tricky thing is is some of the people that are leading both campaigns are not particularly favourable characters in the first place. So it's a situation going, well, do I want to side with Nigel Farage or Nick Clegg? You know, it's a difficult... Like... Right, exactly. But, but the, the, the difficulty also as well is the, the politicians in the UK have been stung. After the referendum in Scotland, after the AV referendum, would you want to lead a referendum campaign? Would you want to have your <laughs> reputation attacked by the Daily Mail, whatever you said? Um, it's a very uh, kind of dangerous thing to do. You wouldn't want to kind of put your own reputation on the line. Um, or, or at least that's my interpretation of why rather few politicians are, are willing to really stand up and be counted. Sure. Yeah. And that's why a lot of people are saying that David, you know, Cameron's uh, Cameron's job is pretty much on the line with this, isn't it? Right. And he's always said, no, it isn't. But I very much think that it is. If he loses this referendum, that in the end, it was very much his choice to call. Then he's politically toast. It has to be the end. Wow. So, uh, yeah. So it's going to be very interesting whether whether people vote in it or not. This is going to decide quite a lot of major factors that are going to affect people for years and years to come. Particularly if the vote is no, because that is going to promote, provoke a whole range of different political and economic challenges, the scale of which we can't really predict in advance. If Britain votes to stay in, and it votes 55 to 45 to stay in on a low turnout, 
what will happen in Brussels is that Britain remains the slightly difficult member country right. of the European <laughs> Union. It just drops off the agenda as being an everyday political problem, which is what it is in Brussels just now. Um, so this and my fear about this referendum is it's in no way going to put right Britain's relationship with the European Union. It's still going to be immensely complicated, even if Britain votes to remain. Sure. So it may just all it will do is stop us talking about it as much for the next maybe 20 years until another one happens. Yeah, maybe. Well, until Nigel Farage kind of dusts himself down and two years ahead of time uh, starts talking about it again. Look at it in the 19, uh, 1975 referendum, for example. It took the Labour Party only until the early 1980s before they were once again advocating withdrawal in their manifesto. So th wow. there was only a kind of a sort of a ceasefire for just over five years before the issue really cropped up once more. So... This, this is an ongoing tension, an ongoing difficulty in British politics that the referendum is not about to solve. Uh, that's a shame because there is a big part of me that kind of thought one of the good things about the referendum is that after it happens, we won't have to talk about the referendum anymore. But obviously, that's not going to be the case. <laughs> I'm afraid not. This is, this is almost, well, if, if Britain votes to remain, it will calm things down. If Britain votes to go, you're going to be talking about nothing else for the next two years in British politics. Oh, oh dear. Well, that's very sad. There, there's, a, there's, there's, a good, there's a good case for remain. If you're bored by the European Union, vote remain because calm everything down. I thought to finish, uh, I've got, uh, I found a few quite weird EU laws. And I know that as you're an expert on the EU, I thought I'd add some of my own. And I just wanted to see if you could guess whether they were true or false, uh, if these are real EU laws. So, uh, right, I'll, do my, I'll do my best. But bear in mind, the EU has decided some pretty strange things in the future, in, or in the past, and will decide strange things in the future. But I'll do my best. Okay, away. cool. Well, you see, this is, this is what I found. So um, there's six. I've made up three. OK, All right. so the first one, uh, it's illegal in the EU to eat your own pet horse. I think that that is. That must be false because eating horse is allowed. Uh, so if you slaughtered it according to the European Union laws, whether it was yours or someone else's, uh, then you should be able to eat it. I'm afraid I'm afraid it's true. Apparently, if it is your own pet horse, you can't eat it. Okay. Yeah, I know. I was shocked by how that as they, well. How do they how do they define what's a pet horse rather than the horse for other people? These are they're anyway. now asking for like more intelligent questions than anyway. I've researched. <laughs> all right, okay, <laughs> okay. Uh, all hats made within the EU must be clearly labelled with directions for which bit is the front and which bit is the back. Uh, I think that must be false. Yeah, that's right. I made that up. I was quite pleased yeah. with that. <laughs> um okay, uh, people with stutters aren't allowed to drive. Uh, that's also false. Yeah, I made that up as well. Good yeah. work. You're very good on these ones. Um, <laughs> children under eight can't blow up balloons without adult supervision. That one is probably true. Yeah, yeah, correct. Yeah, which I don't know how they regulate that. Well, there's always this question of exactly how they'd implement that one. Um... I think it's also to make sure that balloon manufacturers anywhere in the European Union who sell their balloons in another country don't get sued if one explodes in a child's face. Ah, I think that's clever. probably, the, that's probably the, the, the reason for that one. That is very clever. OK, uh, turnips can't be called Swedes except in one UK town. Um, that sounds plausible. Um, so I'm going to go for... No, but how would you know? <laughs> no, I'm going for false on that one. Okay, oh, but it's, it's true. And the no. reason is, is because turnips and Swedes, obviously different vegetables, but if yeah. one is included in a Cornish pasty, then uh, they, and, and it is called a turnip, oh, sorry, it, yeah, if it's called a Swede and it's in a Cornish pasty, then they don't mind. That's the only right. place, so in Cornwall. Okay. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and last one, self-employed people can sue themselves if they work over 48 hours in a week. Um. Well, I think by process of elimination, <laughs> too true so far. Yeah, so that I one mean, must be true. That one was just a pipe dream of my own being a self-employed yeah. person. That was all. Um, brilliant. You did well. You did very well there. That wasn't bad at all. I didn't keep exact score, but I think you got uh, that was three. You got, got three. A, I got a couple yeah, of those right there. Definitely not bad at all. UK town. Cornwall is a UK area. God, that is clearly how I get the Cornish Independence Party to send me a ton of hate mail. Also, 
John quite clearly got four questions right. This is why I do comedy and not a job that requires any kind of math. Again, thanks to John for being so clear on all matters EU. It certainly helped me make sense of it all and I hope it did for you too. John's brilliant blog can be found at johnworth.eu. That's J-O-N-W-O-R-T-H. And you can find him on Twitter at John Worth. Do go check him out. Apart from Jeffrey, boycotts are a very important part of democracy. The ability for a country, organisation or a person to refuse to handle the goods of another country, organisation or person, even if they really, really want you to handle their goods because it makes them feel real warm inside. I myself have tried several boycotts, though I will admit that many of the ones I've done conveniently work around foods and items I don't like anyway, and now I just seem like a moral champion for not eating chard. The government are currently planning a crackdown on local councils, students' unions and public bodies such as the NHS trusts from boycotting unethical companies. Because, you know, that's totally democratic. It comes after several authorities have refused to work with Israeli companies who operate in illegal settlements in the West Bank. And I should say that as I said illegally, I did some air quotes because... And let's be honest, Israel-Palestine is probably going to come up at some point in this podcast, but I don't think any of you want this episode to be a three-hour edition. So, because, under the 4th Geneva Convention, these settlements are considered illegal, but under Israeli law they aren't, because, you know, no one's stepping in to stop them, so why bother going along with, and hey, sometimes there are just too many human rights in the world, (laughs) why not buck the trend? (laughs) So... Under these new government policies, public bodies could face severe penalties if they decide to have an opinion or think for themselves or believe in something or chase the dream. The thing is, aside from this sounding a little bit totalitarian, Amnesty UK also says stopping public bodies from boycotting things could persuade other countries to violate human rights. You know, if there's no threat to their exports and industries from the UK. And it kind of just says, international law, some international law, who cares how many children you kill, we'd still love a banana. I mean, of course, that's an extreme possibility, but it really doesn't seem like a very sensible policy for anything other than business reasons. Still, with local authority cuts being so high anyway, I guess they could just pretend that they've stopped the boycott, but they're not going to purchase certain goods because, hey, they're a little bit too pricey now and we'd like to keep our library instead. So, that's all for this week's Partly Political Broadcast. Again, if you have things that you'd like me to cover and talk about, or someone that you think I should try and interview, please do let me know at our email, partlypoliticalbroadcast at gmail.com, which, yes, is a very long email address, and that might be why absolutely no one sent me anything today yet. Or you can tweet at parpolbro, or our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash parpolbro. It's hugely appreciated that anyone listens to this at all. And if you do and you enjoy it, then please, please do spread the word. Give us a nice review on iTunes or maybe just wear a badge that says I Heart Podcasts. I mean, I'm sure that would do. Also, if you're a fan of live happenings and you're based in London, the Phoenix Fringe is starting this Friday at the Phoenix in Cavendish Square near Oxford Circus. It's a brilliant, affordable little festival that I'm involved with where we try to make it affordable for both acts and audience so tickets are just eight pound in advance ten pound on the door or you can get a 20 quid day ticket that allows you to see three shows all the acts are trying a mixture of new shows and old shows and there's people like russell howard rich hall sarah pascoe felicity ward and mark watson on among many many others and most importantly i'm sharing a bill with holly walsh on saturday the 20th where we're both going to be trying some new stuff So if you'd like to come and hear that, uh, you know, some stuff that may be awful, some stuff that may be nuggets of gold in progress, then do check out the tickets on www.phoenixfringe.co.uk. This week's show was brought to you by the letters GCHQ and the numbers of all your credit cards because they can see those and it's fine apparently. Hold up. What was that? 
boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details.